Now remember, this is taking place in 536 B.C. Daniel is in his mid-80s, so he's somewhere between 85, 88, 89 years old, somewhere in there, mid to late 80s. And, and, uh, um, and all, chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12 are all one portion, meaning that they're all uh, taking place of, uh, in the same instance. It's so, so the same event is carried along over three chapters. And so we started this uh, last, last week, and it says up in verse 1 that it's the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So this is the, and he says, it was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And so he's letting us know that this is really the same Daniel, because many people had the same names, and they overlapped sometimes, but he's letting us know that this is Daniel, the one we've been reading about. And it's the third year, because remember, Cyrus is king of Persia, which means that he's over Darius, who is just over the province of Babylon. And uh, Darius was not a Persian, but he was a Mede. There were several other Dariuses that were were later kings of Persia after Cyrus. But we are now down at verse 20. And and, And Daniel is speaking with some angelic being. And he says, then he said, do you understand why I came to you in Daniel chapter 10, verse 20? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. So he is speaking here about a fight that's taking place. And he's fighting against the prince of Persia. What he's speaking about are the very powers of demonic darkness. And he was fighting over this this prince of Persia and Babylon in order to get Cyrus a few years earlier to make the decree to allow allow the the Israelites to go back to Israel. And now he's continuing this fight and he says it's going to continue then in with Greece and he's fighting right alongside Michael. Michael is the angel over the nation of Israel that's guarding and protecting them. So nations have angels and Jesus even expanded upon this we turn to uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse 10. So, so Jesus expanded upon this in Matthew 18, verse 10, says this. He's, Jesus is speaking of one of these little ones, meaning th- those that honor him. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angel in heaven continually sees... Th- th- that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So when Jesus was speaking about those that love Him, Jesus said they have angels. Each one of them has at least one angel because He says they're angels. So each one of them has an angel that watches out for them. If you love the Lord, you have an angel that's watching out for you. So you may say, well, you know, this sounds kind of funny. I don't believe this. But Jesus spoke of it as if it is something that is true. If this bothers you, then lots of things will bother you because Jesus said many things. But he spoke about this as if it were true. He said that each one of you has an angel that's watching out for you. 
that's protecting you from powers of darkness, that doesn't take away your free will, but they're warring for us. So Jesus actually spoke about this same type of thing. Now let's turn back to Daniel. And in Daniel chapter, chapter 10, we, we're finishing up, and let's turn now to Daniel chapter 11. Now, Daniel chapter 11 is a very difficult chapter and a tedious chapter, unless you're one of those people that really likes detail in history. It is a tough chapter to work through, and I'm not going to work through it all, but if you want to work through it, uh, uh, there's plenty of notes that you can get from the internet that can, that can help you with this. But this chapter is, every verse in this chapter is just filled with prophecy. Just as, right after the few introductory verses, it's just packed with prophecy. And I'm going to give you an example of how packed with prophecy it is. So every sentence, there's like three portions of prophecy in sequence, every sentence in succession. And then the next sentence, three portions of prophecy. And, and I've gone through this, and I'm no expert. I've been looking at this for about one week now and studying it. So I'm not an expert. But what will happen is people that are even less experts than me that have studied this not for one week, but for zero time, will make a judgment call on this and say, oh, well, then he speaks of, of the king of the north and the king of the south. This could, you, you, you could just say that's the civil war, the north and the south. No, I'm telling you that both secular... Uh, scholars, so non-Christian scholars and Christian scholars and Jewish scholars who look at this text and know the history, they all agree that this is indeed describing the end of the Persian Empire and then the Hellenistic or Greek Empire. They say it just pegs it right on one after another. But what happens is those of us who are sophomoric in our understanding say, oh, well, this could apply to, to almost anything. It can't. The experts who really study this for years and do PhDs staring at this and comparing it to history say, this is spot on. So the issue is not whether this is speaking about that period of history. What happens is, prior to the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the, in the 1940s, prior to the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you see scholars saying the book of Daniel could not have been written back in the 5th, or 5th century or 6th century B.C., because it was too accurate in its history. It had to have been written in the 1st or 2nd century A.D. because there's portions that also speak of the, of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Messiah. And then what happened to them is that quickly went away when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the, in the 1940s. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, it then predated all of this. So the Dead Sea Scrolls date from about the the uh, the fifth century, the fifth century BC to the first century BC. So now what scholars will do is they say, okay, well, we'll give you that prophetic part about about Jesus's coming, but this other part, this has probably happened right afterwards. There's no way. It's too too amazing. Daniel was already canonized by that time, so it puts. Secular scholars who just want to toss this up as to a historical account as opposed to prophetic account in a real fix. But anyway, let's start looking at Daniel chapter 11, verse 1. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and protection for him. So remember, this is just a continuation of chapter 10. 
So now what he's doing, this is now taking place, he is referring back three, two years earlier. So, so remember, this is, this is the third year of Cyrus. Now he's referring back to the first year of Cyrus and Darius. So this angelic being is saying, two years ago, I arose to be an encouragement to Darius the Mede. Darius is over Babylon. He was encouraging Darius spiritually to watch out for the Israelites. And it, it, but, but that's how they were working. But the, the hymn to be an encouragement and protecting, protection for him, the hymn he's speaking of is Michael, which we just read in the last verse of chapter 10. You see this angelic being and Michael constantly working together. Michael comes to his aid, he comes to Michael's aid. And they were working with King Darius to let him be merciful to the Jews. And then Cyrus came and gave the decree that the Jews could go back. This is in verse 2. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. So what he says, there's going to be three more kings. After Cyrus, there will be three more kings. And then a fourth. Now, there were many other kings beyond that, but it was that fourth one that really led Persia into its downfall. And that's, what he's, that's when Alexander the Great takes, takes over. And he says, he says, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece, and a mighty king will arise, that's Alexander the Great, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he is arisen... His kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others beside them. I want you to see how accurate this history is. So he, he talks about this help to, to Michael. And then what happens in, in chapter 11 he begins to talk about these three other kings. So after Cyrus, Cyrus was 539 to 530. After Cyrus came, there was, a, there was a, a, another king. There were three other kings. Cambyses, who was the son of Cyrus, was another one of the kings. Ahasuerus, who's the Ahasuerus of, uh, of, um, of um, uh, the book of Ezra. And then there was a, there was a king also... So, so Ahasuerus is going to be the one that arises to power later on. We'll see him in just a minute. There was a man named Pseudo-Smerdes in 522. He's called Pseudo-Smerdes because he, was, he actually killed Smerdes and he made himself out to be Smerdes. So he was, he, he was called Pseudo-Smerdes. He didn't last very long. And then Darius I comes. He was 522 to 486. And then, and then there was Xerxes I. Xerxes is actually another name for Ahasuerus, who's the Ahasuerus of the book of Esther. He is the husband of Esther. He became very rich. He became the most powerful one. And then, and then when he, 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 he got so much riches because he, con he conquered Lydia, Babylonia, and Egypt. And he started a very heavy taxation. You can actually see a picture of his wealth in the book of Ezra. In the book of Ezra, he had a 180-day feast, a half-a-year feast in his kingdom. And it starts out, that's in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 12. But then he stirred up, he attacked the kingdom of Greece. He spent four years amassing an army. Now, this isn't written in the Bible. This is all extra-biblical text, which is this history I'm giving you. But it matches up that this fourth king now is going to, 
to, to uh, arouse the kingdom of Greece. He amassed an army for four and a half years of 2.5 million men. 2.5 million man army, which included both an army and a navy, and he set out on an expedition against Greece in 480 B.C. And uh, uh, that started the decline of the Persian Empire. He could not take Greece, and they were able to slow his decline until he was murdered. And so that, that, was, that was the end of him. And then there were several other kings of Persia, but then Greece started to, to really come forth. And it talks about, and a mighty king will arise and he will rule with great authority. That's Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great was just a young man in his 20s, early 20s when he became king. He was born to Philip of Macedon, in, born in 356 BC. He was educated by Aristotle, so from a, a very wealthy and, and uh, intelligent background. And he just defeated the Persians, and he went after the Persians with great force. We read that in earlier chapters where it talks about how this, this fighting with this he-goat and the destruction that occurred. Why were the Greeks so angry at the Persians? Because the Persians had attacked the Greeks. So uh, uh, Alexander the, uh, came, and in 331 he defeated the Persians under Darius III and uh, uh, really took charge. But then what happened is, after he, he did this shortly after that, in 323, he died. So, so, so Alexander the Great died in his early 30s. As, as, again, a young man, he dies. And this is what a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others beside them. So what happened with Alexander the Great is that there was a real faction here that, that occurred. Alexander had uh, two sons. Uh, uh, actually, yeah, he had two sons. One was Hercules. He was the illegitimate son of Barcina, the daughter of Darius III. But he was murdered in 309. He also had another son uh, um, named Alexander, named after him. He was the son of Roxana, who was born after after Alexander the Great died. So she was pregnant. He was born after he died. He was murdered in 310. And we'll, we'll talk about how they were murdered. He also had a half-brother of Alexander the Great, but he was murdered in 317. So it was, it was pretty dangerous to, to be part of these families. And what was happening is his generals really wanted the power. And in fact, it, it talks about how it's, it's not going to go to his descendants. And it didn't. So exactly that happened. And, and nor according to the authority which he wielded, for the sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others. And so it turns out that those sons of Alexander, those two sons, the general said, we'll take care of them until they grow old enough to co-rule the kingdom. Well, a dispute formed between the four generals that were going to take care of them, so they just killed the kids. And uh, uh, that's how they dealt with them. And so you see, this Every sentence, so this is all embodied in one sentence. What I just gave you is embodied in one sentence. And it just goes on and on, and every sentence is just packed, just packed with history here. And uh, uh, there's some other interesting stories, so, so you, can, uh, you can actually see the effects here uh, as, as this goes down. So, for example, let's look at one verse, verse 6. Again, this verse 6. 
And historians, the experts will say this is spot on for history. After some years, they will form an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her and in one and, and the one who sired her, as well as he who supported her in those times. So what happens, there's this, this king Ptolemy Philadelphus uh, and, and T, uh, Antiochus II. So, so there's this lapse of about 50 or 60 years when it talks about, and there will be, and, and at the end of some years, that's what it talks about. So then uh, what happens is they want to form a union, so Antiochus, Antiochus II, Theos, was forced to divorce his wife, Laodicea, to marry Bernice by Ptolemy of, of Philadelphia. So Ptolemy wanted his own daughter to marry this other king to form an alliance. Well, the only way the other king could do it was to divorce his first wife, which he was never happy about, and she was never happy about either. And you see how she's going to get, get some revenge. She had the, the uh, Laodicea, who had the one who was the one who got divorced unwillingly, had two sons, Callinicus and Antiochus. So she had two sons. Those two sons were now disinherited. The first son of Bernice, the one he was forced to marry, was appointed the successor. And, and uh, so the whole reason for the, for the marriage was political. Um, but in the end, what happened, so it says, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm. So she lost strength. What happened is, is uh, uh, her father soon died, and Bernice was then divorced. So, so her father died, and uh, uh, Antiochus II said, I'm not going to stay married to you any longer, so he divorces her. And, and uh, uh, so, so, so she loses power, and then what happens is Bernice, uh, so, so after, the, the death of, of, uh, um, after, after the death of her father, remember Laodicea, Laodicea, who was the one who had been divorced, she went and she had Bernice and her infant son murdered by poison. So she poisoned the first woman and her son. And so then, they, then it goes on and they're just killing each other. And you just see this. It's, it's just all written in here. The amazing thing, so as I'm going through this and studying this this past week, I'm not going to take you through all the details because that was just one verse. All right? Is what you see, and I labeled it here, it is family chaos on steroids. It is the destruction of a family. And it really started coming back to me of things that, that, that were happening this week. I was talking to some of the pastors of this church this week. And I said to, to one of the pastors, how's your job going? He said, today was a rough day. I said, well, what's going on? He says, there was a man in the church, he, he committed adultery and just dealing with all the issues that are now happening in his family. I'm like, whoa. And then I was speaking with another pastor in the church and he, he's, in, he's in charge of um, uh, the benevolence ministry. So when people come and, and they're in need and, and, and certain needs arise, and what he does is he keeps a record of any, so if, if the church is going to give somebody, say, money to help them with rent because they're in a real time of need, they don't just give them money. There are certain parameters here. Okay, how did you get into this mess? Let's see if we can help you to get out of this mess. That's real help. To just throw out money is not good. And what I, what I appreciate about this is they value our money. When we donate money to the church, they don't just, you know, willy-nilly go tossing this stuff out that they're careful with it. 
So he counsels with them and he keeps a record of what he gave them and what the instruction is. And he said that this woman came back again and was asking for more money six months later. And he said, okay, let's... He says, I, I remember you've come before. So he says, let's look that up. And he looks it up and he shows her. He says, I, we gave you this much on this and this date and you were supposed to do these things. And he said to me this. He says, Jim, I'm telling you, I see people, it's like they're following a blueprint for the destruction of their lives. They're following a blueprint for the destruction of their lives. And I started thinking about this in this context. As you read through the history, everybody's poisoning each other. Everybody's killing each other. There's, you may remember we learned previously about Antiochus IV Epiphany. So the one who called himself like a god, and he just shredded the Jews, just shredded them. And he is the one who was the, the northern from the, the Syrian side, which was attacking this, this other Greek general on, on the southern side. And he, he, was, he was going for an, another one of his battles. And uh, uh, then the Romans, who were now in big power, and really the overlord said, you're not going to go into Egypt. He said, well, I appreciate your saying that. Let me confer with my generals and I'll tell you what I'm going to do. And the Roman general took out his sword and drew a circle in the dirt around Antiochus IV and said, you will make a decision before you leave that circle. And, and uh, so he backed off and he went into Israel and just wiped out the Jews. Just utterly wiped out the Jews and took out his frustrations on the Jews. And you see this near the end, further, further on down in chapter 11. So in chapter 11, verse 21 through 35 are concerning Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV, you might remember, is the prototype of the Antichrist. He was so hard on the Jewish people. He is the one who's the prototype of the Antichrist. And you'll see these different groups rising up. The Hasidims, which have nothing to do with Hasidic Jews today, but the Hasidims were ones that fought against him. And then after that, the Maccabees finally were able to deliver the Jews. And there's whole books of Maccabees. If you, if you get a Jewish Bible, you can read about the, uh, uh, the Maccabees. There's a whole book of Maccabees. And you can read about these fights against, against Antiochus the uh, fourth. Uh, so all of this is documented in there. But huge family infighting and struggles. Everybody's killing everyone. Every infant that might be heir to the throne, that might be heir to the throne, is just in risk of being poisoned. Everybody's poisoning each other because it's a, a clean way of just disposing of people. I want you to turn to, to, uh, uh, to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. This is the warning for us. There is a warning for us in the Scriptures. In Proverbs chapter 5, and, and uh, let's start reading from, we'll start reading from verse 1. Look at, this, look, look at this account. My son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress strip honey, and smoother than oil is his speech, but in the end she's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, and her steps lay hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life, her ways are unstable, she does not know it. I want you to know, I memorized this portion. What I just read to you, I memorized when I was your age. When I was, when I was a, uh, um, 
a junior in college, I memorized that portion. And that portion has kept me out of so much trouble. When there was temptation, I would start quoting that portion to myself. And it kept me out of a lot of trouble. And so, so uh, it, it, it goes on down. Let, let, let's see in verse 6. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable, unstable. She does not know it. Now then, my son, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. And strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. If a man commits adultery, everything he has amassed in his life, he will lose. He will lose his wife. He will lose his children. He will lose his respect. I have seen guys lose their jobs because of adultery. What does that have to do? Because he was such a basket case, he lost his job as well. He says he's going to lose everything. He says you give your vigor to others. This is how he's warning them. Your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. Your hard-earned goods are going to go to the house of an alien. I remember when my boys were in college, I was instructing them from this verse. They said, what's an alien? I said, like an illegal alien. You've heard of that? Everything you have is going to go to them. That's what this means. That's what this means. And, 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 and he says, now in verse 11, And you groan at your final end, when your flesh and your body are consumed, and you say, How I hated instruction, and my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. This is what's going to happen. Listen to me, young men, and listen to me, young ladies. When you are married, if you ever commit adultery, you are proclaiming destruction upon your home, and you are going to bring the same tendencies upon your children. That's what will happen to you. Now, you say, well, I'm not married. It's okay now. Let me tell you something else. What you do at this stage in your life will set the stage for what you do in marriage. If you're loose about these things, you'll be loose in marriage. Some people will say, well, you know, we're planning to get married, so all of this is okay. And this is what I tell them. If you, if you sacrifice moral standards before marriage, they will be much easier to sacrifice in marriage. If you lay down moral standards before marriage, you will lay them down in marriage. You will go into marriage with distrust. How can I trust this one when she has done these very things with me outside the bonds of marriage? How can I trust her now that I'm in marriage? When you lower moral standards before marriage, you will carry those lowered moral standards into marriage. So even if you say, well, we're planning to get married, so it's okay. What I'm telling you, I have seen this. You want to go against the voice of your instructor? He says, nor did I incline my ear to my instructors. I've not listened to the voice of my teachers. Listen to my voice, what I'm telling you. I have seen with my eyes many, many cases of this where moral standards have been lowered before marriage and you carry those same tendencies into marriage. If you don't deal with pornography and battle that before marriage, you will bring it right into your marriage. You think, well, in marriage, I don't need it, you know, because I'll just have my spouse. No, you will bring it right into your marriage. And that will bring, again, destruction. There are things that you deal with in this stage in your life. 
You want to follow a blueprint for the destruction of your life? You can easily follow a blueprint for destruction. The Word of God warns us, and for good reason it warns us. It tells us to do certain things. Let's look in, in, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12. The book of 2 Samuel chapter 12. And in 2 Samuel, this is where we have a lot of the, of the life of King David. David was an amazing man. Just absolutely amazing. He wasn't perfect. None of us is perfect. But he was an amazing man. And he had a real depth of relationship. But what happened is, he was standing on his roof and he was now king. When you're king, you're a rock star. I mean, everybody's looking to you. He's standing on the roof and he sees this woman bathing. And I have been to where his home was built. It's up on a hill. Easily from there, you can see down at everybody else. And this woman is bathing on her roof as she's supposed to do. And he lusts for her. He calls her to his palace. And what can she say? He raped that woman. And we know that probably because if she had been willing in this, God never would have used her offspring to be, be the, the, uh, Solomon, the, the next king. He took his position, his position of strength. And I'll warn you of this. When you're in a position of strength, it is very easy to use your position of power and take advantage of others. This creeps up in the lives of many people. And I've seen it in my own life to think, oh yeah, I've got this, this position. I can just push this secretary to do what I want him to do. Very easy to take a position of power and to use that and start muscling in on other people's lives. David did this. It led to, it led to adultery. And then when she became pregnant, he had to cover it up, so he had the guy killed. He had her husband killed to cover up his, his act of adultery. And then, and then he is approached by a prophet called Nathan in verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7, Then David, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, of, Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if it had been too little, I would have added more to you. To you many more things like these. Yet you have despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household, and I will even take your wife from before your, your, your wives from before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You want to mess around with God? Boy, I mean, this was really some judgment. Remember, this is a man who's very close to the Lord. Then he says in verse 12, Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because of this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. David confessed his sin. He was immediately forgiven. It is amazing. Even in the Old Testament, confession of sin, immediate forgiveness. David became a broken man. But the judgment on his house didn't leave. 
You go messing around with adultery and think, well, you know, I'll just ask the Lord for forgiveness. It'll all be all right. You will be forgiven, but it won't all be all right. There are terrible things that happened to David as a result. His own son, Absalom, his own son, Absalom, rose up against him and formed a conspiracy. His own son, his own son slept with David's wives on the palace roof. During that conspiracy, David had to flee Jerusalem. 2 Samuel chapter 15. Turn a few chapters over to chapter 15. 2 Samuel, Samuel 15. This will embody what I'm talking about. Chapter 15, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30. And David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went. And his head was covered and he walked barefoot. Then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went weeping as they went. David now was leaving the city of Jerusalem because Absalom's forces were coming in and attacking. David has to go down into the Kidron Valley and then back up the Mount of Olives. And he walked barefoot. He was in so much shame and so broken and he just covered his head. He couldn't even look at the people. And he walked defeated as he went. This will be your life. It is very easy to follow the blueprint, the blueprint of family destruction. And it is called sin. If you sin, you will follow a blueprint of family destruction. You will lose your family. You will lose relationship with your children. If you sin, it brings destruction. These are serious words. And you will go out of your home, covering your head and weeping as you go. That is the warning. Family chaos galore. I've worked in the prison and, you know, these men, these men in prison who have seen their lives totally destroyed because of their actions, they look to people like me as to why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do what was right? They realize that they brought destruction on their lives, destruction upon their homes, destruction upon their families. Turn to Proverbs chapter 1 and we're going to close with this portion. Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to start reading at verse 20. Now this is wisdom speaking. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20. Wisdom shouts in the streets. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing and fools hate knowledge. Okay, so what he says, wisdom is shouting out. How much louder would you like me to speak? Wisdom says. Wisdom is shouting out. Saying, you'd better listen to this. And wisdom is calling out to three parties that are not listening very carefully. How long, O oh naive ones, in verse 22, will you love being simple? There's naive ones who don't take it that seriously. Oh, come on can't be serious. This won't, this won't happen to me. When, when I get married, you know, I'm going to marry someone I love. I've never known anybody to marry someone they didn't love except the situation with Bernice. You know, I've never known anyone. All right? I've never known it. Everybody says they love each other when they get married. But at least half of those in the church don't work. So love, just loving each other doesn't make it work. You can love the person... Everything you've got, it doesn't make it work. 
O naive one. Wisdom says, listen to me. There's another group in verse 22. Scoffers delight themselves in scoffing. So this is more than being naive. This is like, oh, come on. Scoffers, just brushing it off. And then the third category, and fools who hate knowledge. Absolute fools who so totally reject this. There's three classes. But what you're going to see here is all three of those groups pay the same price. All three pay the same price. Verse 23 of Proverbs 1. Turn to my reproof and behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. Now remember, this is not God saying he's going to laugh at you and mock. This is wisdom is going to mock at you and laugh at you. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. And when distress and anguish come upon you. He says, doesn't say if it comes upon you. He says, when it comes upon you, I'm going to laugh at you. As sure as I am telling you this, if you walk in a pattern of sin, that is a blueprint of destruction for your family. He says in, in verse 20, 28, Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them. There's the naive. The complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and be at ease from the dread of evil. This is the promise. This is what God has for us. You want family chaos like what these people are going through? You go ahead and disobey the word of God. Go ahead and sleep around. Go ahead and embezzle. Go ahead and take things that don't belong to you. Go ahead and tell lies. You will bring destruction upon your lives and your family. It will be a blueprint for destruction. If you want to follow the path of life, it is written here. You take the word of God and you fear God. How do you keep the fear of God? The scriptures tell us by meditation on the word of God, it gives us the fear of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, we get the fear of God by reading his word. It gives us the fear of God. You get on the path to life. And it is so sweet and so good. What I have in my home, I love my wife. I just love to be around her. I don't like it when she goes anywhere. I mean, she's like, would you just stop holding on to me? I said, I just want another hug before you go. And, and uh, I just like to be around her. When you get this right, when you get your lives right with the Lord and get your home right, it is a very, very sweet thing. It is a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing to have. This is what I want for you. This is what God has for you should you follow Him. Let's pray. Abba Father, thank You so much for Your Word, for the truth of it. And Lord, I pray for these young people that they would not walk in their lives in a way that would bring chaos and destruction. But Father, I pray for these young people that You'd get a hold of their hearts, that they would take Your Word seriously. Father, that at this stage in their lives they would start getting it right and that they would strive and work to get it right. 
So they, they bring good patterns into their marriages, good patterns into their homes. Father, protect their lives, I pray. Lord, I pray for these young people that through their lives would become good marriages, good homes, good children who love you and honor your ways. Father, have mercy on them, I pray. Father, to those here who do not know you, who have no ability to pick these things up and observe them because they're just bounced around by the things of this world, Father, I pray that you draw them to Jesus so that they could walk in the power of the resurrection and walk in newness of life. Father, draw them to your Son. Lord, glory be to your name. Protect these young people, I pray, for they are real treasures. Watch over them. Protect them. For the glory of Jesus. Amen.